welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 20th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. Let's start with today's weather. Today, there will be low clouds with a high of 24 degrees. Tonight, there will be low clouds with a low of 18 degrees. Saturday, there will be plenty of sunshine with a high of 29 degrees. And now we switch over to local news stories. It's a real snow day. Siouxland shovels out of 8 inches of winter. Jared McNett reports from Sioux City. Wednesday, January 18, 2023, was one for the record books in Sioux City. The amount of snow that fell in the Sioux City metro from midnight to midnight more than doubled a previous single-day record set in 1975 and was the largest total the area has seen since 2018, according to the National Weather Service Sioux Falls office. With how dry it's been for the past couple of winters, this is one of the more significant snowfalls. And uh, NWS Sioux Falls meteorologist Peter Rogers said, It's been five years since you have seen something of this magnitude. The official observation NWS Sioux Falls has for Sioux City is 7.4 total inches of snow, 6.2 inches on January 18th, and 1.2 more since midnight. Based on the most currently available reports, few places in Siouxland saw totals much larger than that. (laughs) Rock Valley, Iowa had 8 inches as of 7.05 a.m. on Thursday. North Sioux City and Dakota City both reported 8 inches as well. A total of 8.2 inches was listed for Jackson, Nebraska through 4 o'clock in the morning, but snow was still falling at that time. To the southeast, snowfall amounts were less significant. Both Denison and Mapleton, Iowa, reported figures of 6 inches. To the east and northeast of Sioux City, Hull and Pocahontas, Iowa provided similar totals too, but only through the early morning. Right now, the Sioux City area is kind of the epicenter for the highest snow mounts, Rogers said. Aside from breaking meteorological records, Wednesday's snowstorm forced waves of school cancellations for Siouxland. Both the Sioux City Community School District and Bishop Helan Catholic Schools called classes off before 7 p.m. on Wednesday, as snow was still falling fast and heavy. When severe weather is approaching the area, Sioux City Interim Superintendent Rod Earlywine is in charge of determining any delays or cancellations of the school day. He said he monitors various local weather services, including the NWS Sioux Falls. With many different variables to take into consideration, there are no set rules for what is required to cancel school. Freezing rain, wind, snow accumulation, plowing throughout the city are all variables that go into the decision. On Wednesday, school districts in the area had a two-hour early out. Early estimates showed the weather hitting Sioux City around noon, but it didn't start snowing until after 4 p.m. Early Wine said the district has to make the decisions in a timely manner and err on the side of caution. Historically, the district has opted for late starts and early outs, if possible, due to the high number of students relying on free and reduced lunches. Early Wine said the decision was made to cancel school due to the forecast and what was expected to hit Sioux City. We just tried to do the best we can to keep students and staff safe, he said. The South Sioux City Community School District made its Facebook announcement for no Thursday classes at 8.19 p.m. <clears throat> Sergeant Bluff Luton announced no school tomorrow, Warrior Nation, on Twitter around 8.21 p.m. 
At 9.01 p.m., the Dakota Valley School District initially announced a two-hour late start before making it a full cancellation at 5.14 a.m. on Thursday. Woodbury Central shifted from a late start to closed at 9.25 p.m. Wednesday. West Monona's news of no school came to social media at 6.17 a.m. Thursday. The MOC Floyd Valley Community School District posted to Facebook at 8.59 a.m. Thursday, no school, Thursday, January 19th. Despite the major powder deposit, city offices in Sioux City remained open on Thursday. Community Policing Sergeant Thomas Gill said city plows have been out since Wednesday night, clearing Sioux City's main thoroughfares, but he said side streets remained almost impassable for many vehicles late Thursday morning. <coughs> it takes them a while to get those side streets done. So I would say unless you have to go somewhere and unless you have four-wheel drive, I would stay home and not risk getting stuck on the side street, he said. Sioux City Interim Streets Supervisor Brad Baldwin said Wednesday the city had four trucks out pre-treating roads, such as Floyd Boulevard, Morningside Avenue, and Hamilton Boulevard, for the previous two days. When it comes with snow, we are 12 hours on clock, 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., and then we have a night staff that comes in, Baldwin said. Up through noon, the Iowa DOT showed most major roads in the Sioux City area were still partially covered. Iowa DOT listed a stretch just north of Sioux City as completely covered. Nowhere in Greater Siouxland was marked as travel not advised or impassable. (laughs) 9 p.m. Wednesday, the South Dakota DOT mentioned no travel advisories were in place throughout southeastern South Dakota. In Nebraska, I-80 was shut down between the Wyoming border and Grand Island, Nebraska. 511 had reports of Highway 35 in Hubbard being closed due to an incident. Thursday morning, Sioux City adjusted its usual transit routes. Due to the snow, Sioux City buses will be running primarily on the Priority 1 streets and possibly some Priority 2 streets Thursday morning. Transit will not be on any residential streets at this time, the city said via Twitter. Wednesday afternoon, Sioux City Transit Operations Supervisor Jason Allen referred to the decision-making process for his department as a game-time decision. He said a lot of what Sioux City Transit decided to do was dependent on if the snow came in slow or slow and steady or all at once. From 10 a.m. Wednesday to 10 a.m. Thursday, 10 weather-related crashes were reported in the city. Gill said all of those crashes appeared to be minor fender betters as no personal injury accidents were logged during that time period. He said the department tallied nine vehicles in the ditch or motorist assists. We've seen several cars all over town on the side streets. The side streets are terrible right now, so we've had cars stuck just trying to get out of their driveway, he said. Gill said windows of snow downtown often pose challenges to motorists who try to cut across them and end up high-centered. I'm sorry, windrows of snow downtown. (laughs) That happens a lot. And a lot of times those go unreported, he said. Now, if an officer sees a vehicle stuck in one of those and nobody's around, they'll just call a tow truck. So I'm sure the tow trucks like Meyer and Stockton are pretty busy this morning. 
Because of the road conditions, the city of Sioux City canceled Thursday garbage and recyclable collection. Garbage and recycling collection will return on Friday with a one-day delay for the remainder of the week. Residents are encouraged to remove all containers from the curb to prevent damage and allow space for snowplows. Despite the winter blast, power did not seem to be severely affected in Siouxland. Per the Mid-American Energy Outage Map, no halts in service were detected by 1 p.m. Thursday. In Dakota County, Nebraska, officials declared in an email at 6.50 a.m. that the courthouse would be closed. As for what the rest of the work week will look like, Rogers said anyone getting out can expect blustery northwest winds. Those winds will be strong enough to blow around snow, he said. Into next week, Rogers said residents should expect temperatures to stay below freezing. I wouldn't expect the snow that's fallen to disappear rapidly, so folks are definitely going to want to take that into consideration, Rogers said. Private school assistance nearing a vote in Iowa. Caleb McCullough reports from Des Moines. Iowa legislative leaders expect Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal to come to a floor vote early next week in both the House and the Senate. Reynolds, a Republican, announced the bill last Tuesday, and it has dominated the first two weeks of the legislative session. Republicans have fast-tracked it through the lawmaking process in both chambers. I haven't said an exact time, but I would say early in the week would be the expectation, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said Wednesday. House Democratic leader Jennifer Converst of Windsor Heights said she expects the bill to go to a floor vote on Monday. If the bill passes through both chambers, it will go to Reynolds' desk to be signed into law. Next week is National School Choice Week, a week of advocacy and events focused on giving parents broader options in education. Grassley maintained confidence that Republicans have the votes to pass the bill this year. A far narrower private school scholarship program last year failed to gain support of several Republicans in the House, some from rural areas who were concerned about how a loss of funds would affect schools in their districts. I don't think I'd be moving the bill along the process if we didn't have that expectation that it will pass, Grassley said. Reynolds' proposal this year would provide parents the option of using $7,598 in taxpayer funds, the state's per-pupil K-12 education allotment, to send their child to a private school. The money can be used on tuition, supplies, and other educational expenses. In the first year, the program would be open to all public school students and students starting kindergarten at a private school. Private school students in families making up to 300% of the federal poverty level would also be eligible in the first year. Reynolds' office estimates the program would cost nearly $107 million that year. By the time it's fully phased in, the program would be open to all students in public and private schools, regardless of income, and would cost the state $341 million annually. According to estimates from Reynolds' office, the state's nonpartisan fiscal agency has not yet analyzed the bill. School districts would get $1,250 in state funding for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school. Schools would also be able to use unspent money in certain categorical funds to increase teacher salaries. Speaking with reporters on Wednesday, Democrats urged Iowans opposed to the measure to contact their representatives over the weekend in preparation for the upcoming floor debate. 
Democrats, who are in the minority in both chambers, have uniformly opposed the bill as it has gone through committees. Confer said the bill is unpopular with Iowans. More than half of Iowans opposed Reynolds' narrower proposal in a Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll last year. Remind your legislators that we don't work for the governor, we work for constituents, Confer said. So we're asking Iowans to let them know that and remind them that we are not here to do the governor's bidding. We're here to do the work of the people. Senate Democratic leader Zach Walls of Coralville said he expects the Senate will consider the legislation early next week as well. The legislation advanced through the Senate Budget Committee Thursday. Committee leaders from the Republican majority combined the two legislative committee steps into one hearing, and the bill passed both the steps along party lines. Because the proposal includes new state spending, it was required to pass through both education policy and budget committees. The Republican-led House drafted a new rule that allowed them to skip the budget committee in that chamber. Senator Tim Crayenbrink, a Republican from Fort Dodge who chairs the Senate Budget Committee, said he expects the governor's estimate is a conservative figure and that the program would cost even more. Still, Cranebrink said he supports the bill and believes it will work within the state budget because of majority Republicans' conservative budgeting practices. The nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency has not analyzed the fiscal impacts of the bill, and Democrats have said they'd like to see those estimates before it goes to a floor vote. Confer said the agency's fiscal estimate may come on Monday. That's not a lot of time to look over something that's going to be a billion-dollar project over four years, she said. We think that it's only fair when we're spending this much taxpayer money, we should know where it's coming from and how much it's going to impact the rest of the budget. Grassley said he'd like to see the fiscal estimate, but he pointed to the numbers coming out of the governor's office and said Republicans have been transparent about the cost of the program. The goal is obviously to have that, but if we don't have that, we have been very transparent and clear with what the costs are, not just with this, but in the entirety of the budget moving forward, up to even five years, he said. That's really a long projection to make any sort of budget decision. Two finalists announced for Sioux City Superintendent position. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Rod Earlywine and Giovanni Ponce have been selected as the two finalists for the Sioux City Community School District superintendent position. Earlywine currently serves as the district's interim superintendent, and Ponce currently serves as assistant superintendent of high schools for the Houston Independent School District in Houston, Texas, according to a Sioux City School News release. The public will have the chance to hear from both candidates on Wednesday in the Media Center at North High School. Early Wine will be present for questions from 5.15 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Ponce will take questions from 6.45 p.m. to 8 p.m. The district is planning to announce the new superintendent in late January or early February, according to the release. Before becoming interim superintendent, Earlywine served as superintendent at Sergeant Bluff Luton Community School District for 15 years, and before that worked for 12 years as Sergeant Bluff Luton's middle school principal. He resigned in February 2022. He was selected as interim, interim superintendent in April 2022 and officially started in July 22. He holds a doctorate in education administration from the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. 
a specialist degree in educational administration, and a bachelor's degree in education from Drake University, and a master's degree in education administration from the University of Northern Iowa, according to the release. Ponce is currently the assistant superintendent of high schools for the Houston Independent School District. Before that, he served as an area superintendent and middle and high school principal in Houston. He also worked as a campus curriculum technologist and bilingual teacher. Under his leadership, the district has implemented campus support plans to increase post-secondary opportunities for students, increased student industry-based certifications, and improved campus graduation rates in schools across the Houston Independent School District, according to the news release. He holds a doctorate in public school administration from Texas A&M University, a master's degree in educational administration and supervision from the University of Houston, and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the National Autonomous University in Honduras, in Tegui, pardon me, Tegucapala, Honduras, according to the release. The district received 23 applications for the position vacated by Paul Gaussman in June 2022 for a job as superintendent of the Lincoln Public Schools. With the help of the recruiting firm hired by the district, GR Recruiting, the school board narrowed it down to five candidates who they interviewed throughout last week. The search began in the fall of 2022 with community surveys, followed by in-person input sessions with district staff, students, and the public. Former Sioux City TV news anchor dies. Nick Heitrick reports from Emmitsburg, Iowa. Generations of Siouxland television viewers knew Dave Nixon Sr. for his friendly smile and voice while delivering the news, first on Sioux City's KCAU and later at KTIV. What viewers saw on their TV screens was no act. Nixon was just as personable off the air as he was in front of the camera, said George Lindblade, a documentary filmmaker and photographer who worked at KCAU's Creative Services during Nixon's time at the station. Everybody liked him. I can't think of anybody who disliked Dave, Lindblade said. He was a real guy, and he was a real newsman. Nixon, who later taught broadcasting and served as dean at the Emmitsburg campus of Iowa Lakes Community College, died Tuesday at his Emmitsburg home. He was 83. A Dakota City native, Nixon was the evening anchor at KCAU, joining Channel 9 in 1972 until leaving in 1978 to anchor the newscasts at WHO-TV in Des Moines. Lindblade said Nixon had a unique style, writing his scripts in his own shorthand that directors and others involved in the daily broadcasts often had trouble deciphering. He wrote his own style, and sometimes people would step on his stories because they couldn't read it, Lindblade said. <laughs> it sometimes led to heated arguments in the studio, but Lindblade said Nixon could turn from confrontational to friendly in an instant, as he once did when encountering a group of female singers who had come to record the Star-Spangled Banner for the station's nightly sign-off. There was no doubt they had overheard the latest argument, but Nixon didn't let it phase him. I've never seen a personality change so fast, Lindblade said with a laugh, as he recalled Nixon's immediate calm when sweetly greeting the women with a, Ladies, how nice to meet you. Nixon returned to Sioux City in 1980 on Channel 4, anchoring KTIV's news until January 1991 when he went to Iowa Lakes to help open the school's broadcasting program. 
His switch to teaching was a rewarding experience, he told the journal's Marcia Poole in a November 1992 interview. I became fascinated by the whole process of teaching and learning, he said. That's when I became absolutely convinced that moving toward teaching was the right decision for me. Known for his willingness to emcee charity events, Nixon returned to Sioux City every December to preside over the Little Yellow Dog Auction, which each year raises thousands of dollars for the journal's Mr. Goodfellow charity. Nixon was preceded in death by his wife, Judy, who died April 3, 2020. A celebration of Dave's life will be held in April. Martin Mattis Funeral Home in Emmitsburg is in charge of arrangements. Emerald Ash Borer confirmed in Sioux City. Nick Hytrek reports from Sioux City. It was only a matter of time until the invasive insect that's killed ash trees across Iowa was found in Sioux City. The emerald ash borer's presence has been confirmed in Sioux City in samples collected from trees by the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. The pest also has been found for the first time in Monona and Osceola counties. The insect was found in Glencoe and Melvin. The ash borer now has been found in all but three of Iowa's 99 counties, Plymouth, Palo Alto, and Emmett. Originating in Asia, the emerald ash borer was first found in eastern Iowa in 2010 and moved west. Larva feeding on the inner bark damages and eventually kills ash trees within two to four years. Indicators of an infestation include canopy thinning, leafy sprouts shooting from the trunk or main branches, serpentine galleries under the bark, bark splitting, woodpecker damage, and eighth-inch D-shaped exit holes. An estimated 28% of trees in Sioux City's parks and along trees are ash, and the city has been preparing for the ash borer's inevitable arrival. The plan includes allowing ash trees in unmaintained areas to be left as host trees to slow the spread of the ash borer, injecting a larva-killing chemical into ash trees the city wishes to save, and cutting down other ash trees and replacing them with with another tree species. We are removing trees that are in the right of way in our park system. On an as-needed basis, we are evaluating them. There are some very healthy ash trees still in the right of way. We're not going to remove a clear-cut system like some towns have done. City Parks Maintenance Supervisor Kelly Bach said in July 2021, There may be some left for host trees, because if you get everything cleared out around it, it's going to fly a mile or two miles and try to find a new host. To try to contain it a little bit, you leave some sacrificial trees. Woodbury County Extension and Outreach has scheduled a public meeting for homeowners and other concerned residents to learn more about the ash borer and tree treatment and replacement options. The meeting is 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. on February 2nd at the Extension Office at 4728 Southern Hills Drive. Pre-registration is requested. To register, call 712-276-2157. Additional information about the emerald ash borer can be found at iowatreepests.com. And now these local news briefs. Man gets probation for setting fire in Sioux City store. From Sioux City. A man who set a fire inside a Sioux City convenience store was sentenced Wednesday to probation. Orlando Castro, 64, of Sioux City, 
pleaded guilty in September in Woodbury County District Court to second-degree arson and third-degree criminal mischief, which were reduced as part of a plea agreement from first-degree arson and second-degree criminal mischief. District Judge Patrick Todd suspended a 10-year prison sentence on the arson charge and placed Castro on three years probation. Castro was sentenced to 15 days in jail for criminal mischief and credited for 15 days already served. Castro entered Sam's Mini Mart at 923 West 7th Street on June 22nd, went to shelves stocked with flammable automotive products, ignited an object he was holding, and tossed it on top of the shelf before leaving. A former employee at the store, Castro was located at his home less than two blocks from the store. A cigarette lighter was found in his pocket when he was arrested. During an interview with police, Castro said the store owner had falsely accused him of theft and dishonesty. Castro was ordered to pay restitution to the store owner in an amount to be determined. Sioux City garbage collection delayed due to weather from Sioux City. Due to heavy snowfall, there will be no garbage or recyclables collected on Thursday. Garbage and recycling collection will return on Friday with a one-day delay for the remainder of the week. Residents are encouraged to remove all containers from the curb to prevent damage and allow space for snowplows. In addition, the Citizens Convenience Center at 5800 28th Street will be closed on Thursday. Woman charged in Sioux City stabbing from Sioux City. A female suspect has been taken into custody and charged with stabbing another woman. Sioux City police officers were dispatched to 1512 Isabella Street at 2.53 p.m. and once there found a 45-year-old woman with multiple stab wounds to her upper back. She was transported to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Police later arrested Jade Harden, 30, on charges of willful injury, going armed with intent, and assault while participating in a felony. Police continued to investigate the incident. Legislative Town Hall is January 28th at Sioux City Public Museum. From Sioux City, the League of Women Voters of Sioux City and Siouxland Cares are sponsoring a Legislative Town Hall on January 28th. The event will be held at the Sioux City Public Museum from 10 to 11.30 a.m. The public is invited to share questions or concerns with their elected representatives. Siouxland legislators will share their legislative priorities for 2023, followed by questions from the audience. The event will be live-streamed on the LWV Facebook page, League of Women Voters of Sioux City. Questions may be posted in advance on the Facebook page or emailed to lwvsuecity at gmail.com. During the event, Questions may be submitted on the Facebook page. Future town halls will be held on February 25th, co-sponsor NAACP Sioux City Branch, and March 25th, co-sponsor Inclusive Sioux City. And now we switch to national and world news stories. New Mexico shootings follow two years of election assaults. Christina A. Cassidy reports. Two years since the attack on the U.S. Capitol, a series of drive-by shootings targeting Democrats in New Mexico is a violent reminder that the false claims about a stolen election persist in posing a danger to public officials and the country's democratic institutions. 
While no one was hurt in the Albuquerque attacks, this latest outburst of political violence underscores how election denialism has become deeply embedded across much of the country, and how it is driving grievance-filled anger over the nation's politics and office holders. Over the past year, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was seriously injured in an attack in his home by an assailant who said he was sick of the lies coming out of Washington, D.C. Election workers were intimidated and harassed, and prosecutors won convictions in a plot to kidnap Michigan's governor. Further sign of the unrelenting threat came this week, when authorities arrested a Republican candidate for the New Mexico House who refused to accept his loss in last fall's election. Police said Solomon Pena hired four people to shoot at the homes of four Democratic lawmakers. I think we are really entering a new area, a new era, where political rhetoric has gotten so heated and people with mental health issues or extreme conspiratorial viewpoints on the world have resorted to political violence. New Mexico Attorney General Raul Torres, who took office January 1st, said in a recent interview. He wants the legislature to address political violence and said he plans to talk with the Secretary of State's office about ways to shield some information about elected officials or candidates from public disclosure. Torres noted that other countries have become destabilized when extremists use threats and intimidation rather than work through the institutions of government. He said such violence is destabilizing and needs to be dealt with forcefully. It is a threat to the very fabric and foundation of a democratic republic, he said. Lies by former President Donald Trump and his allies about the 2020 presidential election led to the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, as well as threats and harassment against state and local election officials. The insurrection in Washington also contributed to a drop in confidence in election results among Republicans. Some election deniers ran last year for offices that oversee elections, as well as for governor and attorney general, all losing in battleground states. The turn to violence in New Mexico suggests the lasting impact of the campaign by Trump and his allies to discredit the 2020 race he lost and sow doubt about how elections are run. A large segment of Republicans, 58%, still believe Democrat Joe Biden's victory in 2020 was not legitimate according to an October poll by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Pena, a 39-year-old felon and self-proclaimed MAGA king, faces charges in the Albuquerque area attacks on the homes of two state lawmakers and two county officials, including one house where a 10-year-old girl was asleep. Pena refused to accept his landslide loss in November when he won just 26% of the vote in a state house race in Albuquerque against the longtime Democratic incumbent, Representative Miguel P. Garcia. Pena parroted Trump's rhetoric, claiming without evidence that the house race was rigged against him. There is no evidence of fraud or widespread problems in New Mexico's election. Once again, you're listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 20th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Angela E. Sunclades, 71, of Sioux City, died Tuesday, January 17th. Services will be January 23rd at 11 a.m. at Immaculate Conception Church, Mater Dei Parish. Visitation will be January 22nd from 5 to 7 p.m. at Christie Smith 
Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel. Winifred Winnie Mack, 101, of Hartley, Iowa, died Tuesday, January 17th. Services will be January 23rd at 11 a.m. at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Hartley. Burial will be at Pleasant View Cemetery in Hartley. Visitation will be January 23rd from 10 to 11 a.m. at the church. Arrangements are with Hartley Funeral Home. Cheryl A. Anderson, 76, of Newcastle, Nebraska, died Wednesday, January 18th. Services are at are on January 23rd at 10.30 a.m. at Congregational Church in Newcastle. Burial will be at Newcastle City Cemetery. Visitation will be January 22nd from 3 to 5 p.m. at Moore Funeral Home in Ponca, Nebraska. Richard W. Spike Jenke, 59, of Sioux City, died Monday, January 16th. Services will be January 22nd at 1 p.m at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Sioux City. Arrangements are with Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments in Ottawa, Iowa. Recording of service available at the Funeral Home's website. William Bill Bulit, that's B-U-L-I-T, 71, of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, died Tuesday, January 17th. Services will be January 21st at 1 p.m. in Miller Funeral Home, Westside Chapel at 6200 West 41st Street in Sioux Falls. Visitation will be January 20th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Fidelis Hoffman, 97, of Sioux City, formerly of Merrill, Iowa, died Sunday, January 15th. Services will be January 23rd at 2 p.m. at St. Joseph Catholic Church, Ellendale, Merrill. Burial will be at St. Joseph Cemetery in Ellendale. Visitation will be following... Visitation will follow the services at the church. Arrangements with Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And finally, John N. Owings, 86, of Sioux City, died Monday, January 16th. Services will be January 23rd at 2 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at a later date at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be January 23rd from 12 to 2 p.m. at the funeral home. And now we return to local and pardon me. Now we return to national and world news. Treasury buying time. Analysts worry over friction between Biden and GOP House Speaker. Josh Book reports from Washington. The U.S. government bumped up against its debt limit Thursday, prompting the Treasury Department to take extraordinary accounting steps to avoid default as friction between President Joe Biden and House Republicans raised concern about whether the U.S. can sidestep an economic crisis. The Treasury Department said in a letter to congressional leaders it had started taking extraordinary measures, as the government had run up against its legal borrowing capacity of $31.381 trillion. An artificially imposed cap, the debt ceiling has been increased roughly 80 times since the 1960s. I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrote in the letter. Markets so far remain relatively calm given the government can temporarily rely on accounting tweaks to stay open and any threats to the economy would be several months away. Even many worried analysts assume there will be a deal. 
but this particular moment seems more fraught than past brushes with the debt limit because of the broad differences between Biden and the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, who presides over a restive Republican caucus. Those differences increase the risk that the government could default on its obligations for political reasons. That could rattle financial markets and plunge the world's largest economy into a preventable recession. Biden and McCarthy, a Republican from California, have several months to reach agreement as the Treasury Department imposes measures to keep the government operating until at least June. But years of intensifying partisan hostility have led to a conflicting set of demands that jeopardize the ability of the lawmakers to work together. Biden insists on a clean increase to the debt limit so existing financial commitments can be sustained and is refusing to start talks with Republicans. McCarthy is calling for negotiations that he believes will lead to spending cuts. It's unclear how much he wants to trim and whether fellow Republicans would support any deal after a testy start to the new Congress that required 15 rounds of voting to elect McCarthy as Speaker. Asked twice on Wednesday if there was evidence House Republicans can ensure the government will avert a default, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said it's their constitutional responsibility. She did not say whether the White House saw signs at this stage that a default was out of the question. We're just not going to negotiate that, she said. They should feel the responsibility. Over 1.1 million joined demonstrations. Unions call for more strikes. Macron vows to implement reforms. From Paris. At least 1.1 million people protested on the streets of Paris and other French cities Thursday amid nationwide strikes against plans to raise the retirement age. But President Emmanuel Macron insisted he would press ahead with the proposed pension reforms. Emboldened by the high turnout, French unions announced new strikes and protests January 31st, vowing to try to get the government to back down on plans to raise the standard retirement age from 62 to 64. Macron says the measure, the measure is needed to keep the pension system financially viable, but unions say it threatens hard-fought worker rights. During a news conference at a French-Spanish summit in Barcelona, Spain, Macron said, we must do that reform to save the pension system. We will do it with respect, in a spirit of dialogue, but also determination and responsibility, he added. As Macron spoke, riot police pushed back against some protesters throwing projectiles on the sidelines of the largely peaceful Paris March. Some other minor incidents briefly flared up, leading police officers to use tear gas. Paris police said 38 people were detained. In a country with an aging population and growing life expectancy, where everyone receives a state pension, Macron's government says the reform is the only way to keep the system solvent. Unions propose a tax on the wealthy or more payroll contributions from employers to finance the pension system instead. Polls suggest most French people also oppose the reform. Strikes across France severely disrupted transport, schools, and other public services. Over 200 rallies were staged around France on Thursday, including a large one in Paris involving all France's major unions. The Interior Ministry said more than 1.1 million people protested across France, including 80,000 in Paris. 
Union said more than two million people took part nationwide and 400,000 in Paris. Big crowds also turned out for protests against previous efforts at retirement reform, including Macron's first term and under former President Nicolas Sarkozy in 2010. But none of those drew more than one million people, according to government estimates. Jean-Paul Cachina, 56, who works in human resources, joined the march in the French capital, a first ever for him. I am not here for myself, he said. I am here to defend the youth and workers doing demanding jobs. I work in the construction industry sector, and I am first-hand witness of the suffering of employees. Baldwin will face charge in shooting. Prosecutor announces move, citing criminal disregard for safety. From Santa Fe, New Mexico. Actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist will be charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set, prosecutors announced Thursday, citing a criminal disregard for safety. Santa Fe District Attorney Mary Carmack Altwise announced the the charges against Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who supervised weapons on the set of the Western Rust, and said charges will be filed by the end of January. Halina Hutchins died after being wounded during rehearsals at a ranch on the outskirts of Santa Fe on October 21, 2021. Baldwin was pointing a pistol at her when it went off, also wounding the director, Joel Souza. Assistant Director David Halls, who handed Baldwin the gun, signed an agreement to plead guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon, the district attorney's office said. Involuntary manslaughter can involve a killing that happens while a defendant is doing something lawful but dangerous and is acting negligently or without, ca- or without caution. It is a fourth-degree felony, punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine under New Mexico law, but could result in five years in prison because the offense was committed with a gun. Lawyer says gun used by child was secured. Family says boy has disability. Parent often went to class with him. Ben Finley reports from Norfolk, Virginia. The family of a six-year-old boy who shot and wounded his teacher in Virginia said Thursday the gun he used had been secured, and one of his parents usually accompanied him in class, but did not the week the shooting occurred. The family statement was released by an attorney and did not elaborate further on where the 9mm handgun was kept. The family also was not identified. Our family has always been committed to responsible gun ownership and keeping firearms out of the reach of children, the statement said. The firearm our son accessed was secured. The family said the boy suffers from an acute disability and was under a care plan at the school that included his mother or father attending school with him and accompanying him to class every day. The family said the week of the shooting was the first week when we were not in class with him. We will regret our absence on this day for the rest of our lives. The statement was released through the office of Newport News-based attorney James S. Ellenson. It is the first public communication from the child's family and comes nearly two weeks after the January 6th shooting at Richneck Elementary. No charges have been brought, but the investigation continues, Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew said. And finally, new ice core analysis shows sharp Greenland warming spike. Seth Bornstein reports. 
A sharp spike in Greenland temperatures since 1995 showed the giant northern island 2.7 degrees hotter than its 20th century average, the warmest in more than a thousand years, according to new ice core data. Until now, Greenland ice cores, a glimpse into long-running temperatures before thermometers, hadn't shown much of a clear signal of global warming on the remotest, on the remotest north-central part of the island, at least compared to the rest of the world. But the ice cores also hadn't been updated since 1995. Newly analyzed cores drilled in 2011 show a dramatic rise in temperature in the previous 15 years, according to a study in Wednesday's journal Nature. We keep on seeing rising temperatures between 1990s and 2011, said study lead author Maria Horhold, a glaciologist at the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany. We have now a clear signature of global warming. It takes years to analyze ice core data. Horhold has new cores from 2019, but hasn't finished studying them yet. She expects the temperature rise to continue as Greenland's ice sheet and glaciers have been melting faster recently. This is an important finding and corroborates the suspicion that the missing warming in the ice cores is due to the fact that the cores end before the strong warming sets in, said climate scientist Martin Stendel of the Danish Meteorological Institute, who wasn't part of the research. The ice cores are used to make a chart of proxy temperatures for Greenland running from the year 1000 to 2011. It shows temperatures gently sloping cooler for the first 800 years, then wiggling up and down while sloping warmer until a sharp and sudden spike hotter from the 1990s on. One scientist compared it to a hockey stick, a description used for other long-term temperature data showing climate change. The jump in temperature after 1995 is so much larger than pre-industrial times before the mid-19th century that there is almost zero chance that it was caused that is, pardon me, that it is anything but human-caused climate change, Horhold said. The warming spike also mirrors a sudden rise in the amount of water running off from Greenland's melting ice, the study finds. What had been happening in Greenland is that natural weather variability, undulations because of an occasional weather system called Greenland blocking, in the past had masked human-caused climate change, Horhold said. But as of about 25 years ago, the warming became too big to be hidden, she said. Past data also showed Greenland not warming as fast as the rest of the, Antarctic, uh, rest of the Arctic, which is now warming four times faster than the global average. But the island appears to be catching up. Ice core data for years showed Greenland acted a bit differently from the Arctic. That's likely because of Greenland blocking, Horhold said. Other scientists said as a giant landmass, Greenland was less affected by melting sea ice and other water factors compared to the rest of the Arctic, which is much more water adjacent. And now we turn to do, uh, local and state sports stories. SBL, WC to host regional duels. Rankings to determine 24 qualifiers for each class of regional duels. Dave Driesen reports from Sergeant Bluff. The Sergeant Bluff Luton and Woodbury Central boys wrestling teams will each host three team regional duels on January 31st. 
the Iowa High School Athletic Association released the 24 regional sites for the three classes. The top 24 teams in each class in the Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association's final poll on January 23rd will qualify for the regional duels under a new format this season. At each regional site, the two lowest seeds will square off in a semifinal match starting at 6 p.m. on January 31st. The winners will advance to face the highest-ranked team the same night. The winning teams from each region will advance to the state duels on February 4th at Extreme Arena in Coralville. Sergeant Bluff Luton was ranked number two in the IWCOA's poll this week, while Woodbury Central was ranked number nine in Class 1A. The 2A regional duel hosts also included also include top-ranked Osage, West Delaware, Mount Vernon, Creston, Webster City, Humboldt, and Williamsburg. The 1A hosts also include top-ranked Don Bosco of Gilbertville, Wilton, Albernet, Nashua Plainfield, Lisbon, Logan Magnolia, and Emmitsburg. The 3A hosts include top-ranked Southeast Polk, Bettendorf, Waverly Shell Rock, Ankeny, Linmar, Ankeny Centennial, West Des Moines, and Johnson. Sergeant Bluff Luton, which finished fourth in last season's state duels, is led this season by brothers Ty and Bo Coadon. Ty, a senior, is 23 and 5 at 145 pounds, while Bo, a sophomore, is 28 and 5 at 132 pounds, according to TrackWrestling.com. Senior Garrett McHugh has a 29 and 5 record at 195 pounds. Woodbury Central, which won the Western Valley Conference tournament last weekend, is led by senior Max McGill, 26 and 2 at 160 pounds, senior Ryder Cole, 27 and 3 at 145 pounds, and junior Brand Beaver, 27 and 4 at 132 pounds, according to trackwrestling.com. Four other area teams were ranked in the top 24 in Class 1A this week. West Sioux at 12, Hinton 13, West Monona Whiting 15, Kingsley Pearson 17. Akron Westfield also received votes. All five teams, if selected, would be likely candidates to be assigned to the regional site in Moville. Boyden Hall Rock Valley, ranked 21st in this week's Class 2A poll, would be a likely candidate for the Sergeant Bluff site. In Class 3A, Spencer was ranked 25th this week, and Lamars also received votes. If either or both teams qualify, they most likely would be assigned to one of the Des Moines area sites. The IGHAA has used a similar system previously to select regional dual teams in Class 3A. But prior to this season, Class 1A and 2A teams advanced to regional duels by winning first or second at sectional tournaments. Sectionals have been eliminated starting this year. Class 2A and Class 1A districts have been expanded to 12 sites on February 11th, with the top two individual place winners at each weight advancing to state. The top three place winners will advance in Class 3A. Wrestlers from Sergeant Bluff Luton, Heelan, and other Northwest Iowa 2A schools will compete in districts at Sioux Center and Esterville. Class 1A districts for wrestlers in the region will be at Western Christian in Hull and West Monona in Ottawa. Wrestlers from Lamars, Spencer, and Sioux City's three public high schools have been assigned to a district in Fort Dodge. In state basketball, Huskers rally to top Ohio State, 
Nebraska's Hoiberg incensed about officiating despite wind. Amy just reports from Lincoln. Oh, the weather outside was frightful, and there was no offensive fire for either Nebraska or Ohio State. Well, at least not until Coach Fred Hoiberg was issued the first technical of his NU tenure, 12 minutes before the Huskers pulled off the 63-60 victory over Ohio State, Hoiberg was incensed, getting spicy after two questionable officiating calls, a missed foul on a layup attempt by senior guard Sam Griesel, and a soft-moving screen whistle on sophomore forward Wilhelm Breidenbach. I obviously don't lose my mind a lot, but I wanted to go out there and fight for them, Hoiberg said. I've had times where I've tried to get technicals, and they don't give them to me. Tonight I went out and was a little bit heated, and referee DJ Karstensen gave me one from across the floor. Probably well-deserved, but it got the guys going, got the crowd going. Indeed, before Hoiberg's technical, Nebraska was shooting 35% from the floor. After, the Huskers which are at 10-9 and nine, or 3-5 and five in the Big Ten, finished the second half shooting at a 60% clip. We liked it, freshman guard Denim Dawson said. Coach was showing his emotions. I feel like that helped us. We were just like, we're just going to win this no matter what. That's what Sam Griesel said. To be fair, neither Nebraska nor Ohio State's offensive production Wednesday night before Hoiberg's technical was stellar. Rather, the offenses were reminiscent of the dreary and cold conditions outside Pinnacle Bank Arena, where the ground remained blanketed in ice from the morning's wintry mix. But at halftime, Hoiberg was proud of Nebraska's resolve. In that first half, obviously, it was a rock fight out there, Hoiberg said, and the ball wasn't going in the hoop on either side, but we didn't hang our heads. By game's end, Griesel paced the Huskers with 15 points and 7 rebounds. Kese Tomanaga added 11 points, and Derek Walker finished with 8 points and 10 rebounds to give Nebraska its 10th win of the season. The Huskers held a 6-point lead with 43 seconds remaining after Griesel made back-to-back free throws, but a 3-pointer from OSU freshman Bryce Sensabaugh with 35 seconds to play cut NU's lead in half. With the fans at PBA on their feet, a back-and-forth game of free throws ensued until the final possession when the Buckeyes had 10 seconds to potentially force overtime, but Sean McNeil's shot bounced out of the bucket. We were supposed to foul. Wilhelm tried to foul up three there in that last possession, Hoiberg said. But we didn't get quite we didn't quite get it, so thankfully it worked out. Early in the second half, Ohio State, which is at 10 and 8 or 2 and 5 in the Big 10, ran out to its biggest lead of the game at 5 after back-to-back buckets from Justice Swing and McNeil. But the Huskers jumped back in it with back-to-back threes from Griesel and Tomanaga. From there, both squads went back and forth. Between them and Hoiberg's technical, there were two ties and two lead changes. After Hoiberg's technical, Nebraska's shots began to fall. Minutes later, the Huskers regained the lead from a three-pointer from freshman guard Jamark Lawrence and never relinquished it. For Lawrence, that moment felt good. It just, it's just building my confidence up. Sensabaugh paced all scorers with 18 points with 10 rebounds, while McNeil added 13 points and Zed Key added 11 points with 10 rebounds in Ohio State's fifth straight loss. In the first half, it took until the 10-minute mark for either team to reach the 10-point threshold, courtesy of a jumper from C.J. Wilcher that would have been a three-pointer had his foot not been on the line. 
Tomanaga and Griesel led NU in scoring at the break with five points apiece. Overall, though, Nebraska shot 30% in the first half, including 14.3% from three-point range. Despite leading 22-21 at halftime, Ohio State struggled in the first half, too, shooting 26.7% from the floor. The Buckeyes regained the lead ahead of halftime, with Sensabaugh scoring five straight and McNeil adding a jumper. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 20th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. (music) 